The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today and joining me for the show. I'm Diane Ray, and today we're going to open our minds and delve into the fascinating world of quantum theory and its implications for our world. So I've been spending some time watching an amazing new documentary called Infinite Potential, The Life and Ideas of David Bohm. So as I started watching it, probably the question you're having too, who is David Bohm, you ask? (laughs) Well, I was asking myself the same thing. He was one of the 20th century's most brilliant physicists. Albert Einstein called him his spiritual son, and the Dalai Lama relied upon him as his science guru. And today we're going to find out why we've never heard of him and push his name and work into the light. So I have the pleasure right now of talking with the director and producer of the film, Paul Howard. And Paul has worked across many disciplines in the film and television industry for over 30 years in Ireland in such roles as director, producer, series producer, and writer, and working in such genres as biography, natural history, wildlife, and current affairs. And he joins me now from his home in Ireland. And welcome to the show, Paul. I'm so glad that you had some time to talk with me today. Well, hello, Diane. It's a great pleasure. As you say, I'm sitting here in Dublin, Ireland, and it's quite amazing that I'm talking to you over on the west coast of the United States. So, um, yes, uh, let's let's kick off. And I'm, I'm delighted to answer your questions. Do you think David Bohm would think that this is pretty cool? I think so. Um, I think <laughs> that Dave, we're able to do it. Yeah, David Bohm was all about uh, interconnectivity, and one of the big messages in the film, which I, I think we'll possibly delve into a little bit in our conversation, is interconnectivity. Um, and I think he would have embraced this kind of communication. Uh, he would have seen it um, as. Uh, part of the unfoldment of um, new means of communicating with people. Uh, So I think absolutely he would have embraced it. And I think that he would have been fascinated by this kind of technology, which, by the way, is um, very much based on quantum physics. Uh, Every time you every time you switch on your laptop or your mobile phone or your computer, you are um, uh, you are allowing the universe to do your bidding in that process, and that's all tied up in quantum theory. But just in terms of communicating with people, 
uh, right across the world, I think he would have seen it as a very valuable tool. Of course, you know, this kind of technology is open to all kinds of abuse, like every new advancement. There'll, there'll, there'll always be people out there who will abuse it. But those of us who have sincere hearts and sincere minds, um, I think uh, would, uh, and I think Bohm would, have embraced it uh, very positively. Now, were you always interested in science growing up? Was that one of your favorite subjects? Well, actually, um, the answer to that is a flat no. Uh, I wasn't uh, by any means the best uh, science student um, when I was growing up. Um, I wasn't very good at uh, mathematics or anything like that. I tended to gravitate much more towards uh history and English and the arts. And, uh, um, you know, I had a, a kind of an interest in spirituality and religion as well, because that was something that was thought in our schools. And while most of my colleagues, friends uh, uh, would consider that uh, a period to kind of um, jump out of other academic subjects, I actually quite enjoyed it. But the interesting thing is that, you know, when I was growing up in Dublin, um, uh, you know, I grew up in a family where science and religion and philosophy were regular dinner time or tea time conversations. And the name Einstein, uh, Jesus, the Buddha, Darwin, Stephen Hawking, were household names. And um, when eventually later in life, I uh, had an encounter with somebody who told me all about David Bohm, that was the question I asked, how come I never heard of David Bohm? And as you said in your introduction, uh, Albert Einstein regarded him as his spiritual and intellectual successor. And the Dalai Lama, of course, um, he taught the Dal Dalai Lama all about quantum physics. So that was that was the big question for me. How come I never heard of David Bohm? And as I said, my you know my father, particularly who was an airline pilot, he was very interested in. Uh, he wasn't overtly spiritual, but he was very widely read, and he had a, a you know a deep interest in physics and philosophy and. Uh, consciousness and things like that. But, um, and, you know, he would kick off a lot of the conversations we'd have uh, at when the family was all together. And I come from a fairly large family of five boys, two girls. So you can imagine the diverse range of interests. But certainly, um, we discussed everything. Uh, but David Bohm never came into the conversation. Well, one of the things I really loved about the film is how you were able to get us thinking along the lines of science and spirituality merging together where you would think that they are diametrically opposed, you know, that there's no crossover. And, and David Bohm kind of peels back some layers in, in exposing that that's really not true. And just for the listeners that are probably thinking, scratching their heads, you know, well, I'm not really sure I even know what quantum theory is. Um, I just wanted to give kind of a, a basic, you know, explanation of that and, and your explanation. So really quantum theory kind of explains the nature and behavior of matter and energy just at the small, the most atomic and subatomic level. Absolutely. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, it deals with 
Um, I mean, even our, you know, our own imaginations are, uh, I guess, limited in terms of even conceptualizing what the smallest parts of the universe, the everything that is invisible, essentially, to the naked eye, um, is really um, what the quantum world is actually made up of. And then, of course, you've got uh, the classical world and you've got um, the world, uh, I suppose, that Newton and indeed subsequently Einstein were embracing was the, was the, the macro. Uh, uh, so the micro world is really the world of quantum physics. Um, the, 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 everything that we cannot see with the naked eye. And, um, uh, so that really is the difference uh, here. So we live in a kind of a three-dimensional reality of space, time, and sensory perception. Whereas um, when you dive into the quantum world, you're entering a world where relative space collapses. In other words, the relative distance between objects is irrelevant. And linear time, as we know it, um uh, does not exist it uh, it it collapses as well so in a sense you could say that you are entering the eternal because um uh, uh there's no there's no such thing as time in the quantum domain but yet our classical world of relative space and linear time and sensory perception emerges from that deeper reality. So the two are interwoven. And Bohm in his work uh, uh, gives us a kind of a philosophical interpretation of that by, by talking about the implicate order and the explicate order. The explicate order is our everyday world, you know, the things we see uh, around us um, in the spaces that we occupy and in the spaces that we go into and come out of. Um, and all of the uh, the matter that we're surrounded by, and the space between all of these uh, of the objects, and of course, linear time is very useful to us because we can we can set our our clocks and uh, we can set appointments, like having this interview with me. Um, so it's a very practical thing. So our world is the world of space and time and sensory perception, whereas. And this emerges from that deeper reality, which is the quantum world. And when we start to get into that deeper reality, as as we learn more in the film, that, like you said, things are kind of magical. They don't behave the way that you expect things to behave. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's unexplainable. And and David Bohm really wanted to take a look at this and kind of explain the properties. Of yes. this microscopic world, and it's so fascinating because, like, like you were just mentioning, it opens up the whole idea of time travel and various dimensions upon dimensions, and why does deja vu happen? Yes, uh, you know all all of these questions, and it's just so uh, it's just so amazing that you know there could be other worlds and other dimensions and other conscious consciousnesses, you know, that we will go on to after we leave this world. Well, you know, w one of the things um, that the, there's, there's kind of two aspects there to what you're talking about in terms of my connection with all of this. Firstly, <laughs> just to say that um, 
Richard Feynman, the physicist, um, who was uh, a contemporary in a way of Bohm's, he famously said, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, then you don't understand quantum mechanics. Um, and what he was really trying to get across there was that um, the assumptions that we make in our classical everyday world of relative space and linear time and sensory perception, they actually become obstacles in trying to understand quantum reality. So there was a clear, if you like, division between our understanding of the classical world and how we could even come to understand the nature of the quantum world. However, the genius of David Bohm was to look into the quantum world through the prism of what he calls undivided wholeness. It's a bit like standing at the top of the mountain and you're looking down and you see a conflicting event below you. But from the top of the mountain, you can see wholeness. So that looking at both worlds in this way, Bohm was able to dissolve the conflicts and offer a very elegant solution to the problem of bringing together the two big uh, theories that are out there, which was understanding quantum mechanics and bringing general relativity uh, together. And he has successfully done that through this prism of undivided wholeness. Now, um, we'll go into that a little bit deeper later, but I, I also just wanted to mention that, you know, um, uh, in terms of my coming to David Bohm, um, I, I've always had, since I was very young, a kind of a, I don't know, what would I refer to it as, a kind of a, a deep intuition. And um, uh, I remember, um, you know, when I was very young, and I was always interested in cinema, um, even though I didn't know it when I was very young. But, you know, we used to, we used to go to the cinema quite regularly, my, my friends. And, you know, a young mind that isn't burdened with too much conditioning, um, you know, you're drawn into things much more easily uh, than you say you are as an adult with, um, uh, because you've grown up with social and cultural conditioning and you think about things in particular ways and so on. But a young mind can be drawn in to things um, much more easily. But I used to go to the cinema quite regularly in the small village where I grew up. And, you know, as soon as the lights went down and that projector beam hit the screen, I entered into the reality of that screen, uh, that two-dimensional world that was up there. And I lost any awareness of people around me and was completely drawn into the reality of the movie. And then the shock would happen. The lights in the theater would come on and uh, people around me would start to shuffle out towards the exit onto the street. And this was a very strange feeling for me, coming from this kind of reality on the screen back into our everyday world of three-dimensional reality. And, you know, it was something that... Uh, 
I thought about a lot and I used to discuss with my friends and my friends sometimes actually were quite amused because sometimes when I'd be walking home from the cinema, I'd spin around at great speed to see if there was some projector behind me projecting this three-dimensional world that I was seeing in front of me. I always felt that maybe this world that we live in is some kind of projection from a deeper reality, another dimension. Just like, you know, the projector in the cinema can project a world up onto the screen, I thought maybe this three-dimensional world was coming from some kind of projector that we couldn't see. But as a, as, a, as a kid, I thought maybe I could find this, you know. And it was an idea, actually, that stayed with me, even right throughout my teenage years. And the other thing as well that I was always struck by, especially when we'd go to, um, uh, you know, religious teaching uh, in school, um, I was always struck by the words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, that spoke to me as if there was something emerging, you know, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. It was, it was kind of talking about some other reality that was feeding into this reality. And um, again, I used to have discussions with my dad about this. And uh, he, you know, he always said, um, uh, you know, he introduced me to Matthew's gospel. He said, if I wanted to get into the New Testament, read the gospel according to Matthew. But there it was again, you know, it was like Jesus talking to the multitude about the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the kingdom of heaven is within. And what is this kingdom, you know? But my dad had a kind of a, a rational explanation for it. He said to think of it as another dimension, um, something that really cannot be grasped by our ordinary sense perceptions. So he had a kind of a philosophical outlook. But again, that kind of cohered, if you like, with my view about this um, other dimension that was feeding in to our everyday world. And um, so I always had this notion so that eventually, you know, when I did come to David Bohm um, and he was talking about these other dimensions of reality, it just seemed to fit so well with my own phil philosophical outlook. And um, I think as I delved more and more into Bohm, um, I found that more and more uh, of his um, explorations in physics, um, I felt had kind of deep spiritual implications. And they cohered very much with my own, uh, which, which were more intuitive ideas, which became solidified when I actually met David Bohm through the physics and through his philosophy. That's interesting. So what you're saying in a way that when you were young, did you feel that kind of you were participating in, in your own movie and that you entered into the movie and, you know, it's going. And then I guess if at the time that you leave the movie, maybe you would even enter another one, an exactly. another projection that yeah. could be another, um, another life. Yeah, I, I mean, I just felt that the world, this world that we're in is a kind of a projection from a deeper reality. As I said, just like the way I could be sucked into the story up there on the screen, the reality in the cinema, it was almost like 
this everyday world was was uh, as you say it's kind of like a movie that i'm participating in and it's kind of like well where is this coming from and actually i had another kind of aha moment and my father was kind of relevant to this as well because as i said uh, he was an airline pilot and um uh, i was traveling to london with him once i think i was about uh, 16 or 17 at the time and he was uh the captain on a boeing 737 and the flight was from dublin to london and um I I had uh, the great pleasure of being in the cockpit with him because it was one of the little bonuses we'd get, even if the a, a flight uh, was fully um, uh, was full. Well, uh, my father would be able to arrange for me to come into the cockpit and sit in what they called the jump seat, which is just up behind the pilots, you know. But anyway, um, we took off, and when we entered English uh, airspace or British airspace, um we were experiencing terrible turbulence and uh, we couldn't see a thing. The visibility was almost zero and we were up in these late afternoon dark clouds. And I remember my father telling me that he had he was dealing with kind of 80 to a 100 mile an hour crosswinds that were pushing us off course. And of course, he was feeding all the um, appropriate information into the cockpit instruments to make sure that we we weren't being pushed off course. So he was working very diligently and all of this kind of stuff, but he could see I was a little bit kind of uneasy. And he told me just to keep my eye on what they call the altimeter, which is something that uh, uh, tells you about your rate of descent. So I kept my eye on that. He thought that would be a good thing to kind of occupy me. And I could see that we were descending very rapidly, but still we could see nothing. Like and, and I was kind of there. So eventually I piped up and I said, um, uh, I don't think I directed this at my father. It was possibly the other pilot. And I said, how do you know where we are? I mean, you know, we can see nothing. But actually it was my dad who answered. And he said, count to 15 and you will see the runway directly in front of us. So I counted to 15 and lo and behold, there it was like an apparition. We came out of the cloud. And I remember it vividly because it was the main runway at Heathrow and it was beautifully lit with the runway lights reflecting in the wet because, you know, it was very wet, very windy. And then my dad said, count to 15 again and we'll be on the ground. Sure enough, I counted to 15 and we were on the ground. And, you know, this was just incredible. So as we were taxiing into the terminal building, I said, but how do you know? How do you know our position above the ground with nothing visible in sight? And my dad turned to me with a kind of a smile, kind of a mischievous smile. And he said, in a kind of biblical language, he said, ye of little faith. Right. In other words, did I not have faith that he could actually bring this into ground, onto the ground? But actually, that's not what he meant, because he knew and I knew it had nothing to do with faith. Um, it had to do with hard physics. It had to do with Einstein's equations. In other words, had my dad tried to land that aircraft using his sensory perceptions alone, we would never have landed on that runway. We possibly would have ended up in some field, uh, perhaps dead and injured, far from the destination. 
But in other words, um, Einstein's theories or the uh, physical equations that are built into the cockpit instruments and his ability, obviously, to read those, uh, that's what got us in. So the big point of all of this story is that suddenly I, I came to this realization that we misperceive our world through our sense perceptions. We, re we actually rely on something beyond our three-dimensional reality of space-time to navigate our own way in the world. And that's how aircraft take off and land safely every day. So I was quite young at that point. You know, I was 16 or 17. But that was a big moment that we depend on other dimensions of reality to navigate our way in our everyday world. So again, that was an insight into this other dimension of reality, you know, the unseen projector, if you like, that I spoke about earlier, that there is something going on underneath our everyday world that is um, producing the effects, the real-time motion effects in our everyday world of space and time. So that was a big moment for me. Right. That's it's such a great revelation. It's so interesting. And, and it's like when you have the the concepts of time, like I'm always fascinated when I travel home to visit my family in Florida across the country and I live in California and the, you know, the way that the time differences work that I could leave at a certain time in Florida and come back to California and it's three hours later, you know, and kind of wrapping your head around that. And also other experiences where one time I was in a group meditation and, you know, the time seems to go by in two seconds and you find you've been sitting there for, exactly. you know, an hour or 45 minutes so what what happened to that? Did did it go anywhere, or is it just my my perception? You know, my perception of it. I mean, do you think that our perception is reality? I've heard that that statement made before. Um, well, are you referring now to this notion of the observer is the observed? Is that what you're what you're talking about there, or are you talking about something else? No, it kind of leads into that. The the observer and the observed, you know, is yeah. because we see it as it's true to us, right? We're experiencing it. Well, you know, um, one of the big things that, um, as you know, David Bohm, he, um, uh, he became a little dis disillusioned with the uh, scientific orthodoxy. And um, uh, because... In a sense, he had challenged the um, uh, the um, traditional, what is now known as the Copenhagen uh, interpretation, and we deal we deal with that uh, the Copenhagen uh, interpretation of um, uh, quantum physics through the famous uh, two slit experiment. Hold that thought though, just one second. Yeah. We just have to take a short break sure. and we will be right back. I'm talking with Paul Howard about his new film, Infinite Potential The Life and Ideas of David Bohm, just getting into some really fascinating territory. We'll be right back in just a minute. Stay close. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
Welcome back to Be Present, The Diane Ray Show. I'm Diane Ray. I'm talking with director and producer Paul Howard about his new film, Infinite Potential, The Life and Ideas of David Bohm. Uh, after I saw the film, it just really opened my mind to all kinds of possibilities. And right before the break, we were talking, we're getting into a little bit of some actual uh, quantum theory and a famous experiment that I do want you to explain because th- this is really incredible and really kind of illustrates the uh, unpredictability and what's so fascinating about quantum theory because you can't explain what's happening. And you were talking about the the Copenhagen experiment, and maybe right. you could just uh, explain that a little bit. Sure, I will do that. Um, yes, I mean, basically, um, this has... Um, uh, there's a part of this experiment that has remained uh, quite a mystery uh, for some time. And well, actually, uh, when I say for some time, for almost 100 years now. And um, basically, what I was getting into is that physicists noticed that when, when electrons uh, or particles or photons were um, fired um, uh, through two slits, that um, instead of uh, producing a distinct band where you would think that the electrons would end up on the wall behind the two slits, um, instead, instead of two, instead of distinct bands on the wall on the other side, they in fact create what physicists call an interference pattern-like waves. Now, in an effort to decode that mystery, physicists decided to put a measuring detector by one of the slits. But when they actually put this detector in place, the electrons did not produce any interference pattern. So in other words, the act of observing, the conscious act of observing the electrons collapsed the wave pattern. Now, this was this is a mystery that uh, remains within quantum physics today if you follow the traditional Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics. Now, Bohm was with that up to a point, but then he decided to go his own way and avoid this collapse problem altogether. So the the kind of godfather, if you like, of the Copenhagen school was Niels Bohr. And um, Bohm then began to differ if you like, in his views from Niels Bohr. Um, One of the things that the Copenhagen School do uh, recognize is the essential wholeness in quantum theory. But in a sense, Niels Bohr felt that the quantum world was unanalyzable. In other words, that there can be no layer of reality beyond the statistics that they were getting in their instruments, in the laboratories and so on. But Bohm felt that something mysterious was happening here, and he wanted to know more. So he ended up writing his uh, what his famous hidden variables paper, and when he sent it for publication, there was very little reaction to it. And part of that is simply because the orthodoxy at the time were preoccupied much more with the statistics that quantum information can give you rather than del- delving into the why. In other words, where, what is this quantum world and what is, what is it all about? 
to the point that even Niels Bohr himself denied the existence of particles at, the, at this level. Um, whereas Bohm, of course, completely disagreed with that. But um, Bohm continued in his concerns about the Niels Bohr interpretation. And he came up then with this new version, uh, which he called hidden variables. And hidden variables throws up some very interesting ideas that have actually very deep spiritual implications. Um, um, basically, uh, he introduces us to, if you like, a new force or a new energy that exists at the quantum level. And this force or energy, it's something that arises naturally in the quantum world. And this force or energy, it conditions the energy of a particle or particles. Now, Diane, just stop for a minute and think. Everything in the known universe is made up of particles, okay? So at the quantum level, if you have an energy or force that is conditioning the energy of a particle so that its internal form responds to this conditioning that this energy gives it, and this energy is providing a context, it's informing the particle of its condition and context within the whole. And when I, when I say within the whole, I mean the whole meaning the whole universe, because the whole universe is, is made up of particles. So it's the informing action of this quantum potential that allows our physical universe to be, to exist. And that's what gives rise to the well-defined motions we experience in our world of everyday space and time and sensory perception. Now, there is a very deeply spiritual idea. We've all learned in school about the creation of the world uh, and the, you know, the first book of the Old Testament is the book of Genesis. And, you know, now you look into what David Bohm is doing in quantum theory here, and he's giving us an insight into a new form of energy that is actually informing the particles of which the entire known universe is made up of. And it's that informing action that allows our universe to be. Now, how mind-blowing is that? I mean, that's... It's very mind-blowing because what you're saying is that informing, what you're calling the informing action actually has an intelligence. It has an intention. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And many of us could say that, well, that intention could be God. And I think even Albert Einstein at one point was quoted as saying he wanted to learn to think how God thinks, how this process is able to be. And I think it's so fascinating too, and, and, and you go into this in, in the film, how you would think that the scientific community would embrace, oh, look at this idea. Wow. You know, this is unbelievable. Let's explore this. But really it was, it was hidden and, and squashed and silenced and Bohm's yes. work was kept from, from people really finding out about it. And there's also a lot more um, in the film of like about that time where the McCarthy hearings and uh, Senator McCarthy wanted David Bohm to name names and, and talk about yes. this. And 
and he wouldn't. And so he went to Brazil. Exactly. Well, you see, there was an awful lot going on in that period. As you rightly say, you had the uh, those terrible McCarthy inquests. And um, unfortunately, you see, David Bohm, First of all, David Bohm's father didn't really approve of him going into science uh, when he was younger. He wanted him to manage their their uh, furniture uh, store in Wilkes-Barre in Pennsylvania. But of course, he had a brilliant mind and you can't stop cream rising to the top, as it were. And, um, you know, he uh, worked his way through college and he... Um, he was lucky, luckily enough to get bursaries and grants to allow him to go on to the University of Pennsylvania. And then uh, he, he did get the atten attention of Robert, Robert Oppenheimer uh, when he went to Caltech, uh, because Cal um, in, in Caltech, uh, Robert Oppenheimer was actually uh, there and he was lecturing and all the rest of it. And he saw Bohm's potential. And uh, he saw a young, brilliant mind here. And he actually took Bohm under his wing. And Robert Oppenheimer became a kind of a father figure to Bohm, uh, the father figure that he didn't really have, that didn't embrace, if you like, his interest in science in the beginning. Um, but Robert, Robert Oppenheimer became this kind of father figure to Bohm. And, um, you know, the interesting thing about Robert Oppenheimer, uh, he recommended that Bohm should go to Berkeley and uh, uh, Rob Robert Oppenheimer had actually quite a big group of students that he was responsible for in Berkeley. But Robert Oppenheimer himself was embracing the communist ideal and he did have a, a group and Bohm was invited into that group and Bohm went there and he didn't actually find it that interesting. But the very fact that he was tainted, if you like, uh, because of this, the sensitivity surrounding Los Alamos and the development of the atomic bomb at the time and um, uh, possible leaks and so on. This is what the McCarthy thing was all about. Um, uh, now, he was ultimately clear, Bohm. Uh, absolutely. He was entirely vindicated, but he had to go through that terrible ordeal. But of course, the people at Princeton, uh, where he was, uh, where, where uh, he was located um, uh, uh, after the after he was vindicated, and um, the very fact that he was tainted with uh, this communist thing, um, they didn't want him on ca on campus indoctrinating what they felt. Uh, you know, the authorities at Princeton, they didn't want anybody that had come through the McCarthy inquiries uh, uh, potentially in, in indoctrinating new science students. And of course, Bohm wouldn't have been doing that anyway. But somehow Robert, Robert Oppenheimer was able to distance himself, even though he was immersed in communism himself. Um, and interestingly, later in Robert Oppenheimer's career, he was put forward uh, as a possible national security advisor in the United States. And um, he, he, he didn't get the job simply because of his past communist leanings. So it did actually end up catching up with Oppenheimer eventually. But back to Bohm, poor Bohm then uh, couldn't get a job uh, in America. And um, uh, Einstein actually... Uh, got behind Bohm and wanted to keep him as his assistant in Princeton. But um, uh, 
uh, he he the authorities wouldn't wouldn't let him back on the. He was actually banned from the campus. So there were some colleagues that knew people in Brazil, and uh, he had to go to Brazil where he. Um, worked teaching physics in the University of Sao Paulo. And you can just imagine what a trauma that was for a young man to be kicked out of Princeton and to be, um, you know, at the hands of the American government, his passport taken off him and uh, he having to take out Brazilian citizenship to work in Brazil. I mean, this was very traumatic. But yes, it was during that period that he published his famous Hidden Variables paper, the one we were talking about. And the amazing thing was that nobody could find anything wrong with it. Oppenheimer himself, and it comes out in the film, they looked at it and they couldn't find anything wrong with it. And Oppenheimer then came out with that famous statement uh, saying that if we cannot disprove Bohm, we must choose to ignore him. and you know, in choosing to ignore Bohm for all kinds of political reasons, he was now away from the elite that he was, that he, that he had the, uh, you know, that he was previously circulating with at Princeton and at Berkeley and so on. But he was, he was a kind of an outcast now. And um, even though his paper was brilliant, they still chose not to acknowledge that brilliance and they they couldn't find anything wrong with it but they just chose to ignore it and um the interesting thing then of course is that bohm eventually goes to israel and to london and a young phd student pulls out the hidden variables paper and actually revives it and brings it to the attention of his peers at university college london and as they say then the rest is history the phoenix rose from the ashes again. And, um, you know, Bohm's paper is now recognized as being hugely important. Also, the other relationship that I was really interested in in the film was the relationship between Bohm and Krishnamurti. And, and what always fascinates me when I, when I talk to spiritual teachers and, and scientists is that it seems like the, the ancient people really understood this. You know, they knew about the hidden worlds and and they respected it and they you know worshiped it and wanted wanted to study it and and Bohm was fascinated in reading in Krishnamurti's writings of of being the witness boy i would give anything to be able to be at a dinner or a conversation <laughs> you know to listen to one of their conversations wouldn't that be amazing it and would. i know there's footage that exists that you you feature in the film no uh, you've touched uh, you've touched on a lot of things there just jumping back to the quantum potential there you know the informing action of this potential that allows our physical universe to be uh, in, in so far as that it informs particles and in a sense uh, i personally have come to believe and you know bohm doesn't abs uh, absolutely state it but to me that is consciousness itself it is the 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 actions of this consciousness this energy this spirit that is acting on the particles and allowing creation to be now jumping back of course to the two slit where um you know there is this uh, ongoing issue in traditional physics that, you know, uh, the act of observing something changes it. 
And this is what happens in that two-slit experiment. So in other words, if I'm in a room uh, and, and, and I'm an observer of this experiment, or even if I have placed a detector into the uh, experiment, um, it's as if the, the particles or the electrons know they're being observed and they behave differently. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's quite incredible. And then you have that um, very good anecdotal story. Well, it, it is true, actually, that Cyril Bohm's wife was in a bookshop in, in uh, Bristol and she was browsing and uh, this, she picked up this book called The First and Last Freedom by uh, Krishnamurti. And she opened a page and she saw those words the observer is the observed. And we have a nice clip in the film where David Bohm talks about how Cyril brought this book to him and he looked at it and he was intrigued too um, because that's a big question, as we've discussed in physics, that you know the act of observation actually changes something. So Cyril Bohm actually thought this was a book on physics when she picked it up. And of course, David Bohm then read the book, The First and Last Freedom, and um, he was intrigued by the ideas in that book um, about the nature of thought and the nature of consciousness and so on. Because while Bohm, like most physicists, are interested in the nature of reality, Bohm's particular interest, and he stated this himself, was really in the nature of consciousness. Consciousness that is continually in motion, it's continually changing, it's continually uh, manifesting itself from the unmanifest, and it's never static or complete. So when he read this book by Krishnamurti, there was something in there that really cohered with his own outlook in terms of, you know, who we are, where we come from, why we're here, all of the big questions. And it seemed to cohere very much with David Bohm's views uh, about the nature of reality, the nature of mind, uh, our psychological makeup, uh, views on consciousness, and so on. So he requested then to have a meeting with Krishnamurti, and that's really how that relationship started. So it was this notion of the observer is the observed that brought these two great minds together. And that resulted in a 25-year relationship in which they explored lots of big ideas, the nature of thought, the ending of time, cosmic reality, all kinds of uh, great discussions. And they, uh, they, in large part, actually have been recorded, and they're, they're quite fascinating. That I thought that relationship was so interesting, really bringing to a physical level the concept of we are one. And we hear that a lot, you know, especially from from spiritual teachers and, and different authors. But when you watch this film, it really brings it to a, a level that of reality that that brings that concept home. One of the great things that comes out of David Bohm's hidden variables theory uh, as well is this notion. Uh, of non-locality, okay? And I'll just explain what that is. David Bohm noticed that uh, particles were able to communicate with one another. I mean, the, the essentially what comes out of this uh, idea of no non-locality is something very 
profound. And essentially, uh, what it actually does mean is, first of all, it underpins the whole idea of wholeness, but also it focuses in, as you rightly said there, our oneness, because what they've discovered is that particles uh, at one end of the universe can communicate to particles at the other end of the universe instantaneously without any signal passing between them. Now, this, of course, caused huge controversy when this was uncovered. Uh, and it again, it went against traditional physics. Uh, Einstein had a major problem with it as well. Um, uh, he called it uh, spooky action at a distance. And he kind of advised Bohm, look, just leave that alone. But Bohm, of course, being the brave scientist that he was, uh, got deeper into this. Now, you see, within the Einstein theory, anything that propagates faster than the speed of light breaks up. And that's at 186,000 miles per second. Okay. So in other words, if you send a signal within our world of space-time and sensory perception, it cannot go faster than the speed of light. So how come then you can have these particles that from one end of the universe to the other can communicate with one another instantaneously with no signal passing between them? Now, let me bring you back to Bohm's idea of undivided wholeness. If you accept the idea of the implicate becoming explicate or the unmanifest becoming manifest, you then say that our local world, our everyday world of space and time, emerges from the non-local, okay? And in that non-local, not only do you have the informing action of the quantum potential on particles by giving them a context within the universe, within the whole, Okay, and then you have these same particles that can communicate to one another without any signals passing between them. That is a full expression of our interconnectedness. You are made up of particles, Diane. I'm made up of particles. Everything in the material world is made up of particles. So essentially, the message from that, and this is one of the messages I really wanted to come out to come out of the film, is that this is oneness. This is undivided wholeness. If particles can be so interconnected and speak to one another without any signals passing between them, it means essentially, in a word, that we are all one. And if we are all one, and so interconnected, then it would seem only logical that we should be taking better care of one another, ourselves, and of course, the household we all occupy, which is planet Earth. So if we're not doing that, we're damaging our world, we're damaging each other, uh, we're damaging, if you like, the interconnectedness that we all share. So this, if you like, is one of the big philosophical ideas that comes out of Bohm's work. Well, the film was just incredible and really opened my eyes and, and mind to some big ideas. And I really want to thank you for 
putting this together and, and giving us this. Um, I've been talking with Paul Howard, the director of the film, Infinite Potential, The Life and Times of David Bohm. And you can see the film right now for free if you go to unityonlineradio.org slash free movie. And just to wrap up, Paul, I'm, I'm so grateful for you giving me this much time. You know, towards the, the end of the film, uh, they said when David Bohm died, one of the last things that he said was that he was on the edge of something. <laughs> he was still working. And I just, oh, what do you think he was working on? Well, you know, he was working that day at Birkbeck uh, College with his longtime friend and colleague, uh, Basil Hiley. Uh, I mean, it was one of the great enduring partnerships in physics. And of course, there's something very mysterious about that. He picks up the phone and he tells Cyril, his wife, that he's going to be home. Uh, and he mentioned, he, he, his words were, you know, it's tantalizing. I feel I'm on the edge of something. Now, I've asked Basil Hiley, who was in the room with him that day, and they were working together. Basil left a little bit early, and he said he didn't notice anything different about Bohm. He was just working as normal. And Basil put it down to maybe it was just something they were working on, and he had made some kind of breakthrough. Now, Somebody else said to me that maybe he had a premonition of his own death and that he was possibly referring that maybe he was going to make some kind of transition because, you know, Bohm was very much into ebb, flow and flux. His whole, his whole philosophy is underpinned by movement and emergence and process. But I think... In a way, Diane, all we can do is speculate here. In, in a sense, you know, looking back on it, you would say that he had a very peaceful passing from this world because he left Birkbeck College and he, got the, he walked to Edge, Edgware Road Station uh, or he, he got a, a tube to Edgware Road Station and then he took a cab from there to go home. And the cab pulled up outside his house. And by the time the cab had pulled up, he had died. So in a sense, this is a complete mystery. The fact that he was on the edge of something and nobody knows what it was or what he meant by that, it will remain a mystery to us all. And I've no answers either, Diane. Well, it's fascinating to think about what it was and maybe... His questions are now answered, and he knows. He knows exactly. those answers, <laughs> where exactly. he is. And thank you, Paul Howard, so much for talking with me today and sharing your work. The film, Infinite Potential, The Life and Ideas of David Bohm, and I urge you to check this out. Thank you, Diane. An absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.